Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. I'm so excited. I've been excited about this interview for a long time, but I'm joined by Bishop Donald Hying of Madison, Wisconsin. This is not the first time Bishop Hying has been on my show. He joined me last year. Hopefully you listened to that episode. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. But today, Bishop Hying is joining me again. We're going to talk about some things going on in the church, more broadly speaking, but also uh, this remarkable little book that I'll talk about in just a minute, Love Never Fails by Ignatius Press. Uh, Bishop Hying uh, wrote this, and it was released earlier this year. But Bishop Hying, welcome back to Credo. It's a pleasure to see you. Oh, thanks so much, Zach. I appreciate being on, and I appreciate what you're doing for the sake of the mission of the church. Thank you. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really glad to do it. Uh, and I really am excited to talk to you. It is not every day that I get to talk to a bishop, but there are so many things going on in the church and uh, so many things we could talk about. Uh, we're obviously constrained uh, by time today, but I do want to talk about your book, Love Never Fails. Uh, like I just said, this is a remarkable little volume. Um, I picked it up as soon as I could. I, I pre-ordered it, had a copy sent to me and um, messaged, uh, messaged Bishop Hying and said, I'd love to get you on the show so we can talk about this. And what I like about this book, Bishop, is that it's really digestible. It is written very much for a popular audience. Um, it is not long chapters on dogmatic theology. It is really short reflections, generally two to five pages, just reflections on the Christian life and how God's love is revealed to us. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's really fantastic. I highly recommend it. So maybe just as a first kind of softball question for you, Bishop, why did you write this book, Love Never Fails? And when we look at just people's um, struggle to live the faith today, I think there's many people that they love the Lord, they're engaged in the church. For whatever reason, they may not necessarily know much about mm -hmm. the faith in terms of intellectual content. They want to be able to evangelize. They want to make a difference. And I think uh, the book is really just some practical explorations of aspects of the faith. I'd like to think that it's substantial enough to be nourishing and yet simple enough not to be overwhelming. But just to say, you know, li living the faith on a day-to-day -day basis is, is not only possible, but it's also practical and it's it's also joyful for us. It, it, it makes us better people in the here and now um, besides preparing us for eternal life. That's well said. And, you know, the title of this book is Love Never Fails. And uh, I have to imagine you probably put quite a bit of thought into what to name this book, maybe work with your editor or publisher to do that. But I was thinking about how we hear in Love Never Fails, we hear in that phrase, we hear sort of echoes of this popular idea today that love wins or that love is love. Uh, more, more so that love wins, right? And the idea behind love wins is that basically the, the, the human heart gets what the human heart wants. Uh, and that phrase is often used to provide license to a variety of uh, activities that the church does not and and will not ever condone, uh, activities that are antithetical to the health of the human person. And so I want to sort of contrast those ideas a little bit, right? The one says that love wins in the sense that, uh, you know, we we have full license to do exactly what we want to do, what the heart wants to do. Your idea is precisely that... Uh, that love in Christ gives us the freedom to do the things that we should do. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit more about, about that, sort of how, how, can, how should we contrast those ideas or thinking about the difference between the two? Well, that's a great distinction, Zach. If, first of all, the, the title of the book is My Episcopal Motto. So when I was named a bishop uh, 10 years ago, I was immediately contacted by someone who wanted to create my coat of arms. Wow. And um, they said, what, what's your Episcopal Motto? And I hadn't given it a thought. And it immediately came to me. It just, I just said, love never fails. And that, that's what it, it became. 
So the, the book really just captures what my Episcopal motto is. But I, I like your distinction. And I, I would say the fundamental difference is when the New Testament speaks of love, we're, we're speaking of a person. You know, we're speaking of Christ. You know, so God is love, as St. John reminds us in his epistles. So love begins not with us. You know, It's not our self-created initiative. It's not us choosing a relationship or choosing an identity. It, it's God breaking into our lovelessness with the love which is Christ. And then we respond to that love of Christ with, with a life of, of virtue and of sacrifice, of generosity, of self-gift. I think if you look at it from a worldly perspective, love is always going to begin with us, you know, our desires, um, what we want to do, who we define ourselves to be. And not to say there aren't graces in that or that it's it's all evil or bad, but it really comes down, I think, who do you start with? Do you start with God or do you start with me? And for Christianity, it's always the the drama of God looking for us before we even begin to look for him, that he's already reached out, grasped us, loved us in Christ, and offers us this relationship with him that becomes the meaning of our lives. I love that contrast, and what you're illustrating is really a theocentric worldview versus an anthropocentric worldview. The one puts God at the center, the other puts us, man, at the center. And I think that ties directly to a question that you asked early on in the book, and when I first read this question, I, like you, you, you described the story when you heard mm-hmm. it when you were younger, uh, like you thought it was really easy. And the question is, is it easier to love God or to be loved by God? Mm-hmm. And I think that the normal person, I certainly reading it the first time thought, of course, it's, it's easier to be loved by God because you don't have to do anything, right? It's just some, like mm-hmm. something that you, that God, God loves you irrespective of what you do. God loves you unconditionally. Um, and then I thought a lot about it a little bit more. And I think it is related to this theocentric, anthropocentric idea Right to be loved by God is a totally different idea, and it's on a different plane, I think, than to sort of um, love one love with one's own love towards God. So, can you talk a little bit more about that idea as well, and what you mean by that? Yeah, I think a, a practical way to look at it is when you think of the foot washing ritual on Holy Thursday at Mass. Would you prefer to have your feet washed, or would you prefer to wash feet? Yeah, that's. I a good think point. when I ask people that question, most of them, almost all of them, say I'd much rather wash feet. Absolutely. Than, than to have my feet washed, yeah. right? And I, I think it it points to this um, particular theme that we're exploring here, and it's that when I give, it's on my terms. You know, I'm in control. Yes. I decide what to give, how to give. Um, you know, I'm doing something that makes me feel, you know, beneficent or generous. To receive means to accept something on someone else's terms, to allow this other person to break into my life and to give them the freedom to to serve me and love me in ways that, that may not always be comfortable when it comes to kind of our transactional way of viewing human relationships at times. So when we apply that to God, to allow God to love us means I'm allowing God to break into my life, I'm giving him permission to love me and to act and move in my life. And I think that can be frightening for many people because it's going to demand change within us. It also demands us to accept ourselves and to see ourselves as lovable by God. And I think for all of us, at least most of us, if not all of us, um, that, that's a difficult thing to accept because you know, we know ourselves in a way that no one else does. We know our 
our faults, our sins, our failures, our bad thoughts in a way that no one else does. So it's a burden sometimes to live with ourselves our whole life and to say, God knows me through and through and he loves me anyway. Um, that's a remarkable thing to accept. And yet when you look at the lives of the saints, it was precisely when they came to that point of allowing God into their life that that became the trigger for their conversion and really propelled them in a whole different direction in many cases. Yeah, you're uh, you're speaking directly to me, Bishop, because I was reflecting on that as you were talking and just how, um, you know, all these stories of incredible conversion are not moments in which the person decides, I'm going to now love God, but they're moments mm-hmm. in which the love of God just breaks through this barrier, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes with the force of a tidal wave and moves right. these move these people to to do things that, uh, you know, that we now look on and just and just look with wonder, how did this person do this? Mm-hmm. It's because they're 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 being loved by God. They're responding to the love of God. And they yeah. were first loved by him and struck by his love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really remarkable. And it's one of the things I appreciate about your book. I mean, it's such a simple, that this idea we've, we've been talking about is some, such a simple idea, um, but it's not one that I've given a ton of thought to. And I've, I've read, you know, my fair bit of sort of systematic theology and gotten mm-hmm. into some pretty advanced ideas. And then this is maybe the most simple, you know, that God loves us and God wants to love us. And it's not something that I've mm-hmm. spent, uh, spent too much time on. So I'm grateful for your book with that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just to, to contextualize this a little bit more in our culture, um, you mentioned already that we want to we want to love on our terms. We want to do our own things. But I look around the world. I look around even just my city here and there are so many people who are just absolutely broken uh, and they want to love. Uh, you know, they can talk all about the virtues of loving other people and being compassionate and kind, but they won't allow themselves to be loved by God. So how how countercultural is this whole idea? How countercultural is this idea that God loves us and mm-hmm. that that God that, that we need to let God love us? Mm-hmm. I think it's very countercultural in the sense that it acknowledges our dependency on God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think of uh, Ted Turner, you know, famous founder of CNN, um, ex-husband of Jane Fonda, no friend of organized religion. Yeah, famously said Christianity is for losers. And what he meant by that, of course, was that Christianity is for those who are afraid to stand on their own two feet, just say, we're alone in the universe. You know, I'm the the source and the maker of all that I am. You know, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Yep. All of that is kind of very American in a way. Totally. Pragmatism. And yet, you know, what he hurls at us as an insult I wear as an epithet of honor yeah. because Christianity is for losers. It's for those who know they need a savior. It's yeah. for those who know that they're weak and vulnerable. It's those who acknowledge their um, radical dependence on on God and others. And if I don't let God be God in my life, then I'm condemned to be my own God. And how exhausting that is, because it means I always have to be right. I always have to be in control. I always have to say the right thing. You know, no one can can get at me. No one can hurt me. And um, that just becomes a, an impossible and exhausting exercise. So how freeing to be able to say, I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. I need God. And, you know, I want God to be God for me because I'm completely dependent on him. Now, there, there's something inimical in our culture that resists that. And yet until we get there, we really haven't experienced the fullness of conversion. 
Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I'm just, uh, you know, thinking about how this applies in my own life, you know, as someone who um, probably like, I mean, I know for a fact, like many humans just struggle with anxiety, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. it comes from this desire to control. It comes from this knowledge, ultimately, that we are finite. We're -hmm. bound by our own finitude. We can't control everything. And that causes us anxiety. We can't know everything. So, you know, anxiety is always born out of partial knowledge. Um, And I like your point about Christianity being for losers because we often, you know, there's this prosperity gospel, right? That, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the health and wealth gospel, that being Christian is the sort of path of success. Ob- obviously all of that is, is, uh, seriously wrong. Rather we see in Christianity, this, this, um, this sort of glorification of our brokenness precisely in so far as that brokenness lets Christ shine through us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tomorrow we're recording this on August 9th and, uh, I'm reminded that tomorrow we're celebrating the feast of St. Lawrence. And uh, I'm sure, you know, this story Bishop of, uh, St. Lawrence, uh, you know, deacon in Rome being told uh, by the emperor to deliver all the treasure of the church to the mm-hmm. Roman authorities so that they could, you know, usurp it all and, and take it all from the church. Uh, and he brought all the, all the poor and the crippled and the, mm-hmm. the beggars from all of Rome and brought them to the emperor's door and, uh, and showed them in. And he, he said, these are the treasures of the church. And that, that idea is so antithetical, uh, to what we preach now. I mean, I, and I, again, I can speak for myself. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I'm a professing Catholic. I try to be a faithful son of the church. And I find in my own life that I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be beset by a physical malady. I don't want to have a chronic illness. I don't want to be, you know, even at the gym, I don't want to be outlifted by the person next to me. Right. I just, Mm. I always want to be the best. I always want to be strong. I always want to be independent. Um, and this idea that our complete dependence on God is, is where our virtue comes from, uh, is where our value comes from even, Mm -hmm. um, is, is a really tough pill to swallow sometimes. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate your, your Mm -hmm. emphasis of that in the book, that this is what we need to recover. Uh, And it's really hard as a 21st century human, especially a 21st century American, as you said, right? This like this whole idea of, you know, the the Protestant work ethic, this, uh, this, Mm -hmm. you know, individual autonomy, this individual strength, this is all sort of woven into the fabric of, of American life. And it's a really tough thing to recognize that that is not how it should be. No, that's exactly right. That's why one of my favorite places on earth is Lourdes. I don't know if you've ever been to Lourdes. I haven't, but I really want to. Uh, right. Yeah, our, our priest here is a, a um, chaplain for the Order of Malta, so he goes annually, and I've just heard it's oh, amazing. Yeah. Wow. And I find it remarkable, not only because of what the Blessed Mother did there, which when you're there, you, you feel her presence profoundly, but it's also a place where you see on full display the inversion of the gospel. Yeah. It's the only place I know of where the sick the disabled, uh, the weak, the suffering have pride of place. You know, so they, they get the right of way on all the walkways. They get the front seats in the chapel. And um, you know, the, the healthy and the self-sufficient kind of really take a, a, a second place. You know, they're in the background. And I think Lourdes is this beautiful intersection of God's provident and compassionate mercy and healing power and our human neediness. Mm. So it's a place where people who in every other context of their life probably feel marginalized or in essence, they're lifted up and seen as the most important. So I think Lourdes is just a place that really illustrates profoundly exactly what we're talking about here. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I do really want to go. Um, we have, Mm. we have friends at our church, um, uh, you know, several of them have a chronic illness and they were able to Mm. go several years ago and it was just such a spiritually enriching time for them. But what you just described is exactly what I've heard that it is, it's, uh, it's an inversion of what we have in our contemporary society. Mm -hmm. And it it really is the gospel lived out. The last shall be first. Um, it just sounds absolutely beautiful. Um, 
from a pastoral perspective, Bishop, I'm wondering what you would say to people, you know, and I'll just throw myself into this mix, right? People like me who struggle with this idea of, um, you know, uh, being afraid of being weak, being afraid of interdependence, right? Being afraid of dependence, uh, wanting to be independent, to, um, to embrace this idea of sort of the modern human uh, to be totally independent. From a pastoral standpoint, how, what would you say to, uh, to people like us? I think one thing, just to reassure people that may struggle with it, that what we're not saying here is that um, it's good just to be completely passive, mm -hmm. you know, to not do your part, to not um, provide for your family, to not be a contributor to the common good. So we're not saying that um, you just don't do anything, mm -hmm. but it really is saying that in a very existential way, um, you know, we do our part, we make our effort in terms of holiness, virtue, prayer, you know, in terms of work, in terms of all of that. And yet realizing that that's not the source of our self-esteem. And I think that's the mistake we make that, that somehow if, if I can accomplish something or if I'm perceived a particular way, then that becomes my source of, of self-awareness and, and loving myself. And, that will always betray us because the only thing that can ground us ultimately is God's love for us. And the fact that we're beloved children of God. So if I'm trying to ground my self-esteem in anything else, it's not going to work and it, it ultimately will fail. And I, and I think that's, that's what we're saying here. You know, how can I, how can I realize in a good way, my dependence on God and the fact that the things in my life that I find perhaps the most shameful or the weakest, and even my sins, in God's mercy, he finds those areas precisely the most attractive. Mm. And so I always think of Jesus as the physician of souls, kind of looking at our woundedness and our brokenness and saying, I can work with this. You know, I, I can do something with this. It seems to me that the only people in the scriptures that Jesus had the, the most difficult time with were what I would call the religiously self-sufficient you know, those who didn't think they needed him. Yeah. And when he encountered them, he really couldn't work a miracle. He couldn't really do anything with them because their walls were up and, and they were so locked in this complacent self-sufficiency that he couldn't really um, penetrate that. So it's precisely when I realized my, my sinfulness and, and my incapacity to really to, to love heroically on the level that God wants me to, that then I can surrender and let him do that in me. And you, you see that theme of surrender and trust over and over again in both the scriptures and in the lives of the saints. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking of St. Therese of Lisieux, who mm -hmm. died in her <clears throat> convent at age 23, and you know, whose, whose autobiography is a very, um, moving and melodramatic. I don't say melodramatic as a criticism, but just, it, it is, it is melodramatic, a moving examination of the spiritual life and in particular her spiritual life. And she was so conscious of how she merited none of the goodness that God showed her, mm -hmm. but also she was very conscious of how much goodness he had shown her. And so, uh, I think that St. Therese is a wonderful example, wonderful mm -hmm. saint for our time, which explains why John Paul II made her a, a doctor of the church, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, that she has so much to say about our, our weakness. And she would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm so weak. I have no, I have no works whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. she was a very sickly, you know, frail girl for her entire life. And as I mentioned, she died at 24, I think of tuberculosis in the convent. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, earthly works, she had none. She had prayer obviously in abundance and she had virtue in abundance, but she hadn't 
gone out and changed the world um, with her works, she had simply trusted in the mercy of God. And I think that's such a beautiful example. Um, but as you mentioned, the lives of the saints, Bishop, uh, is there another saint who comes to mind as someone who really models this this dependence and, and complete trust, surrender? Yeah, you stole my thunder because I'm Uh-oh. a great St. Perez fan. So I think you said it you said it perfectly, Zach. But um yeah, I'm thinking of St. Faustina as well, um, St. Margaret Mary. A lot of those saints who had private revelations, I think, were often um mistrusted, suspected, accused of making all this up. Yeah. Um, you know, and they just they they spoke what they had experienced, but in the end they had to kind of turn over um, what people were going to think of them and their critics. They just had to hand it over to the Lord and just trust that, you know, they were doing what um, they felt God was calling them to do and, and to leave the rest in his hands. And I think that's, there's great wisdom there for us. I love that. I mean, I'm just struck looking at the whole, the whole canon of saints, uh, all of them. Uh, and there are exceptions, of course, those who have long lives and who are, you know, very visible in the sort of ways of the world or political leaders, et cetera. But for the most part, these are men and women who are, uh, you, know, you know, maybe in religious orders or uh, mm-hmm. simply leading family lives. They're not at the front. They don't have, you know, these storied careers. They're not making lots mm-hmm. of money. They're living very unassuming lives in the ways of the world. And, you know, they, they would be forgotten by history, but for the fact that they, their heroic virtue uh, shines precisely because of what God has done in them, uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's always inspiring. It's very easy to get caught up in our day and age, and you, know, you need a you need a better career, you need a bigger salary, you need a, you need a, a bigger social media following, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to get distracted by those things and to lose track of what matters. Um, and mm-hmm. I think here of Martha and Mary, uh, when Mary is uh, listening to. Um, listening to Jesus and sitting at his feet and Martha's doing the dishes and complains that Mary's not. And um, mm-hmm. Jesus tells Martha that, you know, you're worried about many things and Mary has chosen the one thing and you should too. Um, and and I think that's what, that's what we need to be doing as Christians, mm-hmm. as Catholics. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's, um, it's a combination of, of being and doing right. That I can only, can only act out of a deep sense and awareness of who I am in Christ. Otherwise the action becomes empty. But, but Christianity does call for action. So it's not that we just sit around. And, you know, that's the the sin of quietism, I guess. So it's that balance of uh, knowing who we are and being drawn to prayer and rest in the Lord. But then when we act, to act um, very consciously that we're an extension of Christ in the world. You know, that our actions are words. That we're, we're called in our own way to sanctify our little corner of the vineyard and to. Um, form and shape and love the people around us. Well, I, I want to shift gears a little bit, Bishop, and I have a question for you more about your sort of, um, more, well, I guess more about the sort of affairs of the church today. Um, and, you know, your your little corner of the church is the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think it must be just awesome to, awesome in the true sense of the word, to wake up every day and realize that you are um, you are a successor to the apostles uh, as a bishop in the church. Uh, and what a phenomenal, uh, what a what a weighty task that must be. Um, you know, I've fielded a lot of questions um, or comments from people recently about the uh, the recent motu proprio from Pope Francis mm-hmm. about the uh, the Tridentine or the, the traditional Latin Mass and the um, the uh, the motu proprio that restricts the, its celebration in many dioceses and you know imposes um, various canonical disciplines regarding you know how and when and where it can be celebrated. Mm-hmm. So I want to just get your take on that as a bishop. I mean, this is 
obviously caused a lot of disquiet in the hearts of the faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, not especially, or not only in America, but I think especially in America. Um, and my friend Larry mm-hmm. Chaplin, mm-hmm. I think France is a pretty significant, you know, TLM movement there. So, so mm-hmm. maybe, you know, some other countries, but it's primarily in sort of the developed Western world, um, caused a lot of disquiet and discomfort, um, and is sort of, I don't, I don't want to say shaking the faith, but just causing a lot of uh, turbulence among the faithful mm-hmm. here in the U.S. So as a bishop, uh, I guess I'm curious, how are you implementing that in your diocese, or maybe you're still discerning that? And then what what words of encouragement would you have for the faithful who are discouraged by this? It seems to me, and I'd be the first to stand corrected in, in any of this, uh, because I think we're all kind of seeking further or greater clarity, sure. perhaps regarding the the intentions and the purpose of the modal proprio, but it seems to me that um, the Holy Father is devolving back to the bishops, you know, the authority to, in essence, um, monitor or allow or disallow the, the celebration of, of the extraordinary form. Here in Madison, it, it's relatively widespread. Um, we have maybe six to seven parishes that celebrate regularly uh, the Trinity Mass. And my experience is that, with some very few exceptions, you know, most of the folks in the Diocese of Madison that go to the Extraordinary Forum um, are not doing so for ideological reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not conflicted about the Second Vatican Council. They don't want to be sources of disunity. Um, they're very spiritual. They're raising their families in the faith. They pray at home. They participate in the sacraments. They find the extraordinary form to be spiritually nourishing for them, and they wouldn't um, diminish the Novus Ordo. So I think Pope Francis' intentionality here is is about unity. Mm-hmm. And so I think most bishops would think like this, that we, we don't want conflicts with anyone. We want to nourish everyone in the faith. And, and ideally... Um, both forms of the mass can um, not only coexist, but flourish with each other in relationship to the great mystery of the Eucharist. So um, I think that's just my position. And and I'd say those that may feel discouraged by it, um, just keep living your faith. Uh, The the mass is the mass, Christ is Christ, uh, the Eucharist is the Eucharist, and none of that has changed. Um, So the Novus Ordo is the ordinary form of the Mass. It's the normative form. Uh, the extraordinary form, by its definition, is is the exception. But but I would say, you know, can we support everyone trying to live the faith? And, and do you love the Lord? And are you practicing the faith and participating in the sacraments? To me, that's the biggest, bigger question. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you uh, say those words, Bishop, and hopefully they are encouraging. Uh, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I haven't regularly attended a traditional Latin Mass, so I, don't, I can't really say I have a good pulse on, um, I, I guess, let me back up. I can't really say I have sort of an authoritative pulse on who exactly attends them and everything, but in my experience, in my limited experience, it is, like you said, very faithful families who want to mm-hmm. raise their children in the faith, who are very devoted to the unity of the church, to the precepts of the church, to the dogmatic teaching of the church, and all of those things. And I, I feel for those families and those individuals mm-hmm. who feel, um, you know, I don't mm-hmm. think persecuted is too strong a word, frankly. I'm not saying that they are being persecuted, but I think they feel that way. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel very badly for them and, and hope that their bishops, it sounds like is the case in Madison, in your diocese, but I hope that their bishops can um, can help them not feel that way and to, to not be wounded mm-hmm. and preserve the, the bonds of unity that we share. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the families that I know, they're, they're just good, holy families, right? Mm-hmm. 
and trying to live the faith. And so how can the bishop be the point of unity for the faithful Catholics in his diocese? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that's the question. Right. Uh, well, Bishop, I want to be respectful of your time. I do want to let you go. But my my daughters, if you have a couple more minutes, my daughters had some questions they wanted me to ask you. Uh, oh, that's great. I didn't send these to you in advance. So these are, uh, these are just, you know, they're going to be um, spontaneous. Uh, but my six-year-old wanted to know what your favorite Bible story is. It has to be Parable of the Prodigal Son. Just uh, for all, all the beauty and power and explanation of God's mercy. I, I love the Parable of the Prodigal Son. Yeah, that would be it. It makes sense, and it links to our conversation about being mm-hmm. loved, right? Because the the son is going back, thinking he'll need to earn his father's love and respect again, mm-hmm. and thinking, "What can I do?" And it even, you know, he had to he had to bring himself to the point where he was even ready to go back, uh, never yeah, expecting right. to just receive that father's love unconditionally. Yeah, and the father doesn't chase him down and drag him back; he waits for him to come back. Mm-hmm. But, but that beautiful moment where it says. While he was still afar off, his father caught sight of him and was moved with compassion. So I always get the sense that every day the father must have climbed to the highest brow of the highest hill on his farm and just kind of scanned the horizon, and hoping that and maybe today's the day my son's going to come back. So waiting, longing, wow. but we take our first step, you know, to come back. That's beautiful. I haven't thought about that. I've just thought, mm-hmm. always thought of the father sort of doing his, his, uh, you know, farm work and looking mm-hmm. up and seeing the sun coming back. But I like your mm-hmm. idea that he's, he's searching every day and hoping, mm-hmm. um, my four-year-old has two questions for you. The first is mm-hmm. what's your favorite animal? <laughs> and then the second is who's your favorite character in the Bible besides Jesus? Well, those are great questions. First, my favorite animal would have to be the horse. Oh. Just horses are just beautiful. I think beautiful in motion, beautiful in form. Um, yeah, I love horses. I, I haven't ridden many horses, but when I have, it's it's just kind of a unique, remarkable experience. Yeah. Favorite um, Bible character besides Jesus, and obviously one obvious one would be the the Blessed Virgin, of course. The other one that really captures my heart is Saint James the Greater. Oh yeah. Um, maybe because I've done the Camino of Santiago in Spain twice to his tomb. Wow. But just the trajectory of his life, you know his. His movement to Spain to evangelize, he wants to give up. The Blessed Mother appears to him and kind of strengthens his resolve. Then he goes back to Jerusalem. He's beheaded. First apostle martyred. His, his relics are brought back to Spain. Um, in my mind, it's, it's the power of one person able to transform an entire culture because he gave his life for Christ. So I'd say Blessed Virgin Mary and St. James. Okay, great answers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. It is always a pleasure to have you on. I'd love to do it again in the future if you'd be up for it. Uh, but No, absolutely, Zach. Thanks so much, and thanks for giving us the platform. Absolutely. Thank no, you. I appreciate your your book. Again, the book is called Love Never Fails. I'll hold it up to the camera here. Love Never Fails by Bishop Donald High. You can get it from Ignatius Press. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's just a great examination of the love of God and a call to action for for us, or, or maybe, maybe not action, a, a call to reception, to receive the love mm-hmm. that God offers us. So, Thank you so much, Bishop. Thanks for your leadership in the church. I hope all is well in the Diocese of Madison, and uh, you you and the diocese will be in my prayers. Thank you, Zach. God bless you. Thank you. To my listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Creedle. I hope you enjoyed it. You can leave a comment or send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. Until next time, God bless you. <laughs>